This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with smoke. Higher and higher, filling it with smoke. Filling it with smoke. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. hear an interview I recorded yesterday with a wonderful young doctor who wrote a book about his experience with multiple forms of synesthesia, which is a kind of blending and blurring of our sensory perception. He also has a rare form of it called mirror touch, where he physiologically and emotionally feels 
what people and things around him feel in and on his own body and how that has given him a powerful visceral experience of empathy with everyone and everything he encounters and the lessons that has taught him about empathy and compassion and caring and kindness. Joelle Salinas is a Harvard-trained medical doctor, researcher, and neurologist, and the author of the new book, Mirror Touch, Notes from a Doctor Who Can Feel Your Pain, about his experience as a polysynesthete, someone who experiences multiple forms of synesthesia, which is a kind of blurring of the perception between the senses, including a rare form of synesthesia called Mirror Touch, where he literally feels the physiological sensations of people and things he sees around him. Joelle, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. I'm thrilled to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I really loved the book. Oh, thank you. I love the stories in it. I love the science in it. And it reminded me a lot of Oliver Sacks and Jill Bolte-Taylor and also the movie Zelig, an old Woody Allen film. Mm, well, to be uttered in the same sentence as all those things is just so humbling. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I think you totally deserve it. This book is really groundbreaking, and it's a fascinating journey into the exploration of the human condition and empathy. Yeah, I, you know, as I was writing it, part of me would get kind of really caught up in the science and trying to kind of put together these kind of recipes of, of how to do the models, and I ultimately just kind of took a step back and said, no, let's just stick to the stories. And I felt like that really helped ground the whole thing near the end. And it's just one of those things where if I think to myself, you know, to really open a mind, you really have to start by opening the heart. And the way to do that, I've seen, is really to stick to the narrative. Stories are wonderful. We can all relate to stories, and they always seem to serve to connect us. It's so easy to relate to a story. Absolutely. It's one of the concepts that I take to heart is if you learn about somebody else's story, they're less foreign and less distant. You really kind of begin to close that, that distance because you begin to see the similarities between all of our stories. And that's kind of at the heart of one of the, the key concepts that I think is important and I, I think kind of echoes throughout the book is this concept of empathy, which eventually can turn into compassion and kindness. Yes, and we'll be talking about all those things and especially the development of that and our evolution in that direction. So maybe we could start by explaining what synesthesia is and to tell us about your other experiences of synesthesia, including ordinal linguistic personification. Great. So synesthesia is a blending of the senses, as you point out. So it comes from the root syn 
anesthesia, sin meaning together, anesthesia meaning sensation. So it's kind of like anesthesia, but synesthesia. And people who have synesthesia, their senses are mixed together. Sometimes it's in one form, sometimes in multiple forms. And I use the term polysynesthesia to somebody who has synesthesia to mean that I have more than one form of synesthesia, essentially. So people with synesthesia can experience colors with letters and numbers, colors with sounds, taste with textures, smells with sounds, and all sorts of kind of exotic combinations. So as an example for me, if I look at the word cat, you know, I see if it's written in black ink, I see the black ink, but overlaid on top of that, there's also the association of colors. So the letter C for me is black already, but then the letter A is red, and the letter T is red-orange. And so altogether, kind of the word cat is kind of this cloud of black with puffs of red and red-orange. It's something that you find in about four out of 100 people. And more typically in artists and musicians, which I think is fascinating. And I think part of it is that synesthesia lets you share kind of a, a provocative world and help people think and feel in, in different ways. People like Stevie Wonder, Billy Joel, Tori Amos, Lord, Skrillex, all of them have synesthesia. And even the physicist Richard Feynman had synesthesia. Vladimir Nabokov wrote about his colored alphabets. He described his letter S as a curious mixture of azure and, and mother of pearl. Meanwhile, my S is kind of like a yellow-orange kind of squash color. And what you see in these imaging studies, the brain that people have synesthesia is that the sense areas of their brain appear to be more closely wired together, essentially, and they tend to activate either together or in close proximity to each other. So somebody who, for example, experiences colors or images with sound, when they hear a sound, the hearing part of their brain will activate and the vision part will also activate in their brain. And so that kind of conjures this perception of images with sound as well. And one form of synesthesia that I have is called mirror touch synesthesia. And that ends up kind of tying together vision and touch. And what's fascinating is that this is something that you see actually in everybody in some way, shape, or form. For all of us, when we see somebody moving or being touched or in pain, the vision part of our brain activates but also the touch part of our brain activates even though we're not being physically touched. And this is all believed to be a part of this mirroring network in the brain where it seems to create this kind of 3D virtual reality simulation in our mind of what the experience of another person is going through and it believed to kind of be the fundamental kind of neurobiology of things like empathy or kind of understanding how other people think and feel and maybe even help develop language. For all of us, that activity happens without us knowing, it's unconscious. But for every occasion here and there where that activity becomes significantly heightened, it will cross into consciousness. So for example, if you were seeing a football player suddenly hyperextend his or her knee, or if you were to see someone trip and hit their face, that cringe you get is that mirroring activity becoming heightened enough where it feels as if it had happened to you. But in two out of 100 people who have what's called mirror touch synesthesia, that activity is so high that it's conscious all the time, essentially nonstop. And part of that is believed to be that the brain areas involved in that mirroring kind of network are larger and more active. But then the other part of it that's interesting is that we all have parts of our brain that help us tell the difference between our own physical body and the physical body of other people. But in people with meritage synesthesia, those brain areas seem to be smaller and less active. So this whole kind of mirroring network seems to be even more active. And people with meritage synesthesia feel the physical experiences literally on their own body as if it were happening to them. So this kind of boundary between 
the self and the other is completely blurred. So w- w- what I see somebody else feel, I physically feel on my body. So if you're gasping for air, I feel it. If you're having a panic attack, I feel it. And it's triggered for the most part by sight. And so if you were to, let's say, touch the right side of your face looking at me, I would feel as if I were being touched on the left side of my face. And this is something that has been explored a lot over the last decade. The first case of meritus synesthesia was only reported in 2005, which is my first year in medical school. But even in, the, in that short time, using things like structural MRI studies and functional MRI studies to look at the shapes and brains of people with meritus synesthesia, we have kind of seen these very concrete brain differences. And it has been replicated across several labs and universities. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of research around it, and we're learning a lot about and of how we all perceive our bodies and have ownership over our bodies by learning about mirror touch synesthesia. So the whole field is just fascinating. But one of the things that I really kind of focus in on on the book is just kind of what it's like to have mirror touch synesthesia and kind of my experience from childhood up until this point, essentially talking about my journey. And I also share stories of other people who have atypical bodies and atypical brains who in one way, shape, or form taught me about the brain, about living a fulfilled life, and about myself. So what is it like for you to experience mirror touch? And give us an example or two of some mirror touch experience so that our listeners can really get a a direct sense of what you experience every day. Yeah, so as I'm, for example, as I'm walking through the revolving door of the hospital, I'll see a woman sitting in a wheelchair and she's wearing kind of like a worn tweed coat and a knit cap on her head and I'll feel the sensation of vinyl on the back of my thighs as if I were sitting in a wheelchair. I'll feel the tight fit of the knit cap over my forehead. The volunteer behind her who's leaning on his hip towards the side, well, I'll feel as if the muscles in my hip are contracted and leaning towards the side. I'll feel the sensation of his glasses on the bridge of my nose. As I show my ID badge to the security guard, I'll feel the coiled plastic earpiece that he's wearing on his right ear on my left ear. As I walk towards the main cafe of the hospital, I see doctors, nurses, patients, therapists. Each of them is a different collection of bodily sensations that are being reflected in my own body as my eyes surf across them. And as I line up behind a mother holding a baby on her left shoulder, I'll feel the weight of a baby on my left shoulder, the feeling of the bob of her hair in the back of my neck swaying of her torso as she kind of rocks her baby. And then as I look at the baby, I feel the roundness of both of our faces. I feel our tiny hands clutching. And as he smiles, I feel a smile reflected in my own face as well. And when I smile, it's as if I'm realizing this weird smile. And this experience happens essentially all the time. And some experiences can be much more intense than others. Usually rare or unexpected situations make it harder for me to tell the difference between objective physical reality, kind of like being able to like touch versus my internal subjective reality. So if I'm performing a procedure for the first time, like threading kind of a wire into someone's chest or seeing a new type of patient for the first time, uh, the chances of me experiencing the sensations as if it were literally happening on my own body are significantly increased. As an example, as I was beginning my neurology training, I was seeing patients who had a tick and Tourette's syndrome and one of my patients, he developed self-mutilating ticks in the setting of a lot of stress. So he chews on the side of his mouth and uses his knuckle to push against the corner of his mouth so hard that he actually splits the side of his cheek open, kind of like shredded beef. And 
as he's doing this and grinding his teeth, I feel reflected in my own body, that same sensation, but it's like a painful buzzing that's running through my cheek and into my teeth, like someone's holding a stun gun and pressing it up against my face and triggering it with each of his ticks. And the more forceful he pushes, the more vivid the experience is, and it essentially borders on hallucination. But I found that the more I kind of expose myself to these really uncomfortable situations and these kind of painful situations, the less of an effect it'll have the next time I see it. And sometimes I really just have to reflect on kind of my own physical body, kind of drawing out of the experience of the other person, like thinking about the sensation of clothes against my skin, the feeling of my tongue in my mouth or my toes in my socks. Or I just look at a part of the room that doesn't have a face or any kind of facial expression on it. And this experience can have some benefit as a physician for me as well, both in terms of giving me clinical cues and also emotional cues. So as an example, I was in the hospital recently and I'm consulted to see a woman who has cerebral palsy and because of her cerebral palsy, she can't speak and she's also developmentally delayed and because of that, she really can't communicate at all. So I'm consulted because one morning she wakes up in the hospital agitated, combative, swinging at her nurses and her nurses' aides. And the team wants me to come over and essentially recommend a sedating medication to calm her. As I walk into her room, I see her there in the bed with her sheets kind of kicked off of her and she's kind of rattling the bed rail as she's kind of screaming. I feel reflected in my own body, all of her movements. I feel the beads of sweat on her face as if they're on my face. I feel the strands of hair on her forehead as if they're on my forehead. I feel the furring of her brow and my brow. But then there's also this kind of odd mirrored sensation on my chest rising and falling as if there's this other body laid over me that's just moving faster than my own breaths and I have trouble kind of keeping up with it. And there's this other subtle, almost negligible kind of mirroring of shoulder muscles activating that seems very odd to me. And so I decide to essentially take a risk and trust my my body, my mirror to synesthesia, and I recommend a special test. And when the results come back, it turns out she actually had blood clots in her lungs. She wasn't kind of agitated or just delirious for no reason. She was literally fighting for air. And without the meritus anesthesia, I don't think I would have caught that as early as I did. And then in another situation in terms of emotional cues, I had a patient who came into the hospital who had developed double vision. And he was kind of at, at the cusp of having a really devastating stroke. And we were able to kind of prevent that from happening and he actually was able to walk out of the hospital just fine. When I see him in follow-up in clinic, you know, he's taken up dieting, he's exercising every day, all of his numbers are pristine. But then as I congratulate him, the joy that he's giving off as it's mirrored in my body doesn't feel like the same kind of joy that I usually feel reflected on my body. And so I decide to take a chance and I press him on it and he just breaks down crying. And it turns out that he'd been depressed and anxious, kind of tortured by the fear that he was going to have another stroke. As he called it, he was a dead man walking. And because of that, we were able to have a more earnest conversation and put together a plan. And eventually his quality of life improved. And that sort of information doesn't really come from an MRI or a lab test or a standard physical exam. And I think kind of this heightened state of empathy that was afforded to me through the merit of synesthesia really helped me in that situation.
And I think that same kind of access to that empathy, I think, is available to everybody to be developed, not necessarily to, to the extreme of emeritus anesthesia, but I think we can all engage kind of our own process of empathy so that we can reason through those experiences and then respond with whatever is needed. And more often than not, it's really just responding with curiosity, wondering kind of why is it that that person is reacting that way or doing what they're doing. Why do they look angry or sad? Are they angry or sad? And just asking questions. And you'd be surprised what you learn about just in the process of asking and how often that can be just as therapeutic as prescribing a medication. So as you're having these mirror experiences of other people, you're not necessarily knowing what's going on in their bodies. You're just feeling the raw sensation. And in a sense, it sounds like you have to kind of learn a new language. That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, it's just like any of my other senses. I can be fooled by them just like any of my other senses can be fooled by it. And it's really kind of having a curiosity to figure out why is it that I'm feeling that experience, that mirrored experience of the other person. It's just kind of a glitch in the wiring of my brain and the programming of my brain. And whatever information comes through my senses, my brain will translate you know, and it's imperfect ways, just like, like all of our imperfect brains, and translates it into an experience that is physical and tangible on my body as if I am the other person. But it's not a one-to-one replica of the other person's experience. It's as close, though, I think, as I can get to being literally in the other person's shoes, but it's totally based on the context and kind of my brain's ability to extrapolate, and that ties to all these other factors, like previous experiences and memories and my brain's capacity at that moment to have an experience. Like, for example, if I drink coffee and sleep deprived, the decrease in kind of inhibition and the increase in brain activity, those things sort of make my brain activity extremely high where I can be very attuned to the experiences of other people. But it can be overwhelming in those situations, but it's most overwhelming when there's something really distressing going on or something that I've never seen before. Like when I was a medical student, I was seeing a lot of new conditions for the first time and that became kind of overwhelming and I really had to work through that experience. Like the first time I saw someone die, I was on the medical ward and I was talking to one of the supervising physicians and this code blue goes off and the code blue means that there's a cardiac arrest and it turns out that it's really close to where we are. So we run out of the room and we're you know, dashing through the doors and run into this waiting room and there's this man on the floor and his wife is just like screaming in horror in the corner. And as I'm looking at this man, he's getting compressions and I feel as if I have the compressions being done on my chest. I feel the sensation of the linoleum on my back. I feel the sensation of the breathing tube being passed on his throat like a sharp object being passed on my throat. And as he dies, I feel this kind of like hollowing kind of sensation in my body. And the way I describe it, it's kind of like being in a room with an air conditioner running for, for several hours and suddenly it just stops. And there's that kind of eerie silence where all this activity that was going on is just suddenly stopped and I almost have to will myself to breathe. And at that point, I had to step away, go to the bathroom, and I threw up essentially. I had to kind of ground myself back in my body. And that was kind of the beginning of me really learning how to experience these things and figure my way through it for the sake of my patients and for the sake of my learning to become a better physician and and to help develop myself as a person as well. I couldn't help but wonder if some of these experiences have an actual cellular and physiological effect on you. That's interesting. Yeah, I think I'm a firm believer in the idea that the psychological is biological and the biological is psychological. And as these experiences are happening, it is, you know, part of the wiring and programming of my brain, but 
as I'm experiencing them, it's just like every, like for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction. My brain is constantly responding and changing in response to what I'm seeing. So I'm learning essentially secondhand through the experience of another person, creating new memories that are very intimate to the experience of the other person. And I mean, that will color kind of my experiences going forward, but I've really worked hard to make sure that all of that is additive in terms of kind of enriching my experience of, as a human being and also to being more understanding of other people. I think the meritage synesthesia is one of the reasons that I was drawn to medicine ultimately and it helped shape me as a doctor. Being able to share in the pain and suffering of other people, they get to feel a little less alone. And if you've ever been sick or known somebody who was sick in the hospital, you know that that means a lot in medicine. And being able to reason through that experience and then respond with whatever is needed, be it a medication or just being generous with my time and being really present. As the patient feels better, I get to feel better too. So we both get to kind of be a part of that process, both the pain and and the pleasure. I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Salinas, a medical doctor, researcher, and neurologist, and the author of a new book, Mirror Touch, Notes, from a doctor who can feel your pain. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Do all mirror touch synesthetes experience that kind of empathetic response to people and the environment around them, or was that more unique to you? You know, I consider myself one of the lucky ones with mirror touch synesthesia. You know, the mirror touch has helped me, I feel, be a better doctor, but only after I learned how to harness the trait uh, most meritocinocytes aren't able to strike that kind of a balance. There's one woman who is so overwhelmed by the meritocinocytes sensation, she's essentially become a shut-in, avoiding people for the most part. She even refuses to have a dining room table in her home because she just can't stand the sight of seeing somebody else eat. And other meritocinocytes, even though they are not housebound, they require long periods of isolation just to kind of offset these often overwhelming synesthetic experiences. So, yeah, I, I think my, my experience is, is somewhat unique. You know, synesthesia in general, many people can have it and, and not be distressed by them, but there are people who are distressed by these synesthetic experiences because they can be really unpleasant or just really overwhelming at times. And I think I've been very fortunate, and then I've, I've been able to learn how to figure it through it, but it took a lot of time. I, I kind of describe having almost like a monastic dedication to the physical and mental labor of slowing down and filtering through my sensory experiences. And you know, it may sound kind of simple to create a mental filter for the sake of self-preservation, but it's kind of dangerous where if I filter too much, I end up numbing myself, essentially, kind of losing kind of the, the access to all of my senses and forfeiting my sense of humanity and my ability to empathize. And if I filter too little, I can become too deeply immersed in the experience of the other, losing myself and my senses and essentially losing myself altogether and even, even my sanity. So I really have to balance that. But, you know, I, I think the risk is, is worth it. We all have all of our kind of collection of remembered experiences and sensory perceptions that help us to see our internal and external worlds. And I think that's what makes empathy so challenging, but also so compelling. It really creates an opportunity to, to really put ourselves in the perspective of another person and then 
reason through the other person's experiences to look at what distress they might be in if they are in distress and then think about kind of previous experiences that we may have had that are similar and then rather than being kind of just stuck in that place of distress and suffering thinking about kind of how how to relieve some of that suffering and that motivated state of wanting to relieve somebody else's suffering that is the sense of what compassion is and if you act on that motivation that Action is called kindness. And I, I think this mirror touch synesthesia, it's, it's a heightened state of empathy, but it's not a perfect form of empathy because I might be thrust immediately into the, the shoes of the other person, but it, it's still up to me to walk the mile in front of me to sort through that and then actually do something about it. And I think that's something that we all have access to. You know, if we all kind of engage this experience of empathy a little bit more, just noticing the experience of the other, recognizing kind of what they might be going through, and then trying to feel what it's like, and then taking that feeling and then kind of self-regulating, essentially reasoning through that experience, we can then respond, and that's kind of that process of asking, learning more, and doing an act of kindness. For me, that process has required also balancing it with creating firm yet thoughtful boundaries kind of knowing when I'm capable of really delving in the experience of the other person because if I'm stressed or sleep-deprived, it only makes things worse. And that has also meant really working on resilience, which to me has meant doing self-care every day, little like daily habits of things that we forget about, like am I sleeping enough? Am I eating my regular meals? Am I drinking enough water? Am I stressed out? Am I getting exercise? Because I think you really need to balance empathy with kind of the store of resilience before it happens. So that way when horrible things do happen that you can have that reserve so that you can respond. And then practicing a lot of these extremes between being focused in the other and, and the self. As a kid, you know, I always knew there was something different or odd about me. But I always just kind of assumed that I was a weird kid. Um you know, as I was watching kind of like cartoons, I was always immersed in kind of that television world and all the movements and contortions like cartoons, like watching Roadrunner. If Roadrunner sticks his tongue out, I feel like my tongue is sticking out. If Wally Coyote gets hit by a truck, I feel like I'm hit by a truck. And it was only until medical school that I learned that synesthesia was, was even a thing. But in that kind of process from my childhood through medical school, I went from kind of being very kind of withdrawn to opening up and kind of going too far in the other extreme and being too attached to the experience of the other. And it was only until the last several years that I've been able to learn how to move away from the experience of other and back into the self. And so now I feel like I'm able to navigate those two extremes a lot more freely. You talked about the difficulties you had maintaining your sense of self in intimate relationships. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's certainly the flip side of mirror touch synesthesia. Uh, you know, it can help me professionally, but it, it certainly can be challenging in personal relationships because I'm essentially open and vulnerable to experiencing the darkest emotions of others and suffering them as if they were my own. And for people that I love and I spend a lot of time with, my kind of mental body map, that mental body map that we all have, essentially ends up extending into the other person so that even if I need to desperately move away from the other person, it can be excruciating. It's physically painful to cut away. And that experience is, I think those are the ones that really in the last several years were so critical for me to be able to learn 
how to move away from the experience of the other. And I think that was kind of, I wouldn't say the final challenge, but that was probably the biggest challenge for me that kind of now, now in retrospect, I can be actually really grateful for that it happened because it, it really helped me. And in the book, I talk about my experiences with an ex-girlfriend and then my now ex-husband, where that really kind of played itself to the extremes. And yeah, I think that really helped me kind of not become too immersed in the experience of the other where any potential harm to the other person was harm on myself and essentially kind of being okay with the experience of disappointing and harming another person and, and kind of bearing through it essentially for the sake of my own self-preservation. These concepts, I, th- I think it's fascinating because there's a lot of overlap with what we see in kind of like codependency and over-identification and enmeshing with other people. Though in the case of meritus anesthesia, there's this very clear kind of neurobiological mechanism that is fueling it. And it forces you to be totally conscious of of the whole process. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, kind of learning how to kind of draw into the experience of the other to the self is so much more deliberate now because there's that reflex there that throws me into the other. And so I have to kind of calibrate. And if I need to kind of move deeper into the experience of the other, I just really focus in on those mirrored sensations and then I really focus on that reasoning, kind of putting myself in the position of the other person, figuring out kind of what's going on with them and what's their past experiences and trying to figure out, you know, why another human being, another human being like me is doing what they're doing or saying what they're saying. And then on the flip side, if I need to draw away, doing essentially what I call like a compulsory mindfulness, just focusing on my, my senses, focusing on kind of what sounds and smells and sights are going on around me, but also what's going on in my body, my heart rate, my breathing rate, the feeling of my skin and becoming aware of the senses that we don't typically have our attention drawn to, but that can really help ground me back into kind of enhancing this experience of the self. It's kind of like I have this mental kind of computer desktop and the Meritus and the Seas is just one program that's open as a window on the screen and I have to use my attention to kind of minimize that window. And even though the window's minimized, that process is running and influencing all the other kind of computer programs that are, that are running. But I have more control over maximizing or minimizing the window. Or that's, that's really the only control you have, whereas the rest of us out here, we're going through the same thing except that it's an unconscious process for us. That's right. That's right. But I think one of the things that's really fascinating is that in research tests done looking at empathy, well, one thing I think is important to note is that having an accurate kind of internal representation of the experience of the other person is not as important for developing compassion as it is to make that experience vivid. So imagining that experience very vividly is a better predictor of whether someone will be altruistic or compassionate. And the other thing that is fascinating is it can actually be developed. There's a lot of work done looking at things like compassion meditation. There's a specific kind of meditation called a loving kindness meditation where you start the meditation out by thinking about kind of your own suffering and then kind of wishing yourself well and then the suffering of a friend or a family member and then wishing them well and then you eventually kind of telescope out to imagining that for a stranger or eventually everybody on the planet. And 30 minutes of that meditation, once a day for two weeks, it's shown that that actually has a strong impact on becoming more altruistic, but also having physical changes to the brain where there is more connectivity between the reward and reinforcement part of the brain, that system, to the social perception areas of the brain. That's almost like building kind of like the, the neural muscles for compassion. For expanding our awareness of the world around us and everybody else around us rather than just upon ourselves 
which would oh, be yeah. which would be a much more limited neural muscle. That's right. You know, while, while meritocynesis have an automatic ability to identify with another's pain, empathy begins for most of us with a willingness to try and understand what it's like to be in another person's shoes. And my hope with the book is that people won't just learn more about anesthesia and how the brain works, but more importantly, learn how to develop their own heightened, more engaged sense of empathy to kind of own it as their own superpower. I mean, could you imagine how different the world would be if we didn't just think about what it's like to be in other people's shoes, but also feel what it's like to be in other people's shoes? And then reason through that experience and respond from a truer or enduring place of compassion and kindness. This entire range of empathy is in all of us, and the hardware exists in essentially all of our brains, and we can choose to engage it and in the process develop it. Mm. Near the end of the book, you talk about that we desperately need to learn how to do that, to learn how to, to practice and engage our empathy and build that empathy muscle. Absolutely. To me, this term radical empathy means not just more empathy, it's a more engaged empathy where we're noticing, recognizing, feeling, and then reasoning and asking and responding, especially getting to the point where you can respond. And oftentimes it really is as simple as just being curious, wondering where somebody else is coming from, asking basic questions like, how can I help? Or one of my favorite questions is asking, what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. I guess it's, it's a way of flexing that mirror neuron system and yeah. building the skill. Absolutely. I mean, we know from lots of studies that the brain is plastic. It's constantly changing and it's a process of rewiring and reprogramming, you know, what we have. And we see physical brain changes and we see not just physical brain changes, but functional changes, meaning our behavior changes as a process of practicing these things. And it can be something as simple as learning how to juggle or play the piano or the violin or learning a language. So why not focus on something that is so valuable and so critical to the survival of our species like compassion. And it seems to be very connected to the heart and that we can learn to include the heart in the way we approach life and approach everything in life as opposed to just approaching it from a clinical intellectual perspective which essentially separates us. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I always find so ironic being a physician and also being a researcher, being around the sciences so much is that when I see scientists often communicate to people who aren't scientists, it's clear that these people who know so much knowledge and so much technical information have such a hard time communicating that information. And I think a key to that is just this idea of understanding that to open a mind, you really have to begin by opening the heart. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious why, not only why did you get into the field of neurology, but what is the most interesting and important aspect of that whole realm for you? Yeah, for me, my draw into neurology, you know, aside from the meritus anesthesia, I, I think part of it was just that the brain is just so amazing. It's, I call it the motherboard of reality. It's the one organ that even if we could transplant, we wouldn't want to transplant because it's close to the core of me, the meanness of us, that we can get compared to the rest of our body. And being a neurologist, having the opportunity and the privilege to be able to influence someone's entire, their entire universe, I mean, what an honor. And what, what a deep, astonishing miracle to have that kind of access. And so, you know, the brain is just endlessly fascinating. And so it's hard to understand, so it's challenging, but it's it's totally worth it 
that's definitely one of the things that really brought me into neurology. And after my residency training in neurology, I specialized in behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry in my general. And one of the reasons for that was I wanted to not just have kind of a strong sense of kind of the structure of the brain and nerves and kind of the thinking capacities of it, but also the feeling capacities of it. Because there's, there's this whole other set of functions that our brain has that we don't talk about as much in neurology. And so getting a better facility over psychiatry helped me feel like I had a better sense of the whole functioning of the brain. And the brain really, what it's doing all the time is is essentially making predictions, creating simulations of, of the past and the present and the future, kind of running through all these potential scenarios and detecting what's new and what's surprising and what's novel and understanding uncertainty. I mean, that's kind of what all these different parts of the brain have evolved for so that way we can understand danger and move away. And there's certainly a strong bias for kind of simulating catastrophe and simulating the worst case scenarios because that's how we survive. That's how when we heard a rustling in the leaves when we were cavemen, we were able to simulate maybe a saber-toothed tiger and ran away. But certainly, I think our environment has evolved so much faster than our brain has had a chance to. So we're all kind of stuck with this imperfect kind of machine, this catastrophizing machine that leads to all sorts of stress and anxiety and and depression and influences how we interact with each other. And so getting more involved in the mental processes, the brain processes can really help us get a better handle over living, over interacting, over experiencing a more fulfilled life. And I think that's something that any of us can can take home and it's just so tangible. And that leads to this notion of the relationship between the circumstances of our lives and the stories that we tell ourselves about Mm -hmm. them. Oh yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I love about this idea of kind of the circumstances and the narratives of our lives is it's actually something that you see in other fields as well. Like in software engineering, they call it wayfinding, but the concept of it is is getting a better sense of what are the things that I have control over right now and what are the things I don't have control of right now. And if you have things that you have control over, then focus on that and act and do what you can. But for those things that you don't have control over, those circumstances... Trying to just dwell and kind of steep yourself in that stress and anxiety around it and the dread around it is not helpful because all you're doing is kind of having this kind of fight or flight mechanism in your system activated without, without an outlet. Most of us run into circumstances that we can't run from or that we can't fight. So being able to kind of elicit this ability to relax and create meaning can be really helpful. I mean, our brains are meaning-creating machines. And this idea of the narrative ties heavily into that. When we're in the middle of it, it's hard to recruit those brain capacities to be able to do it. But as we have the luxury of time to let that the emotional significance of those things die down enough where we can begin to reason and work through them, we can create that meaning and restructure the narrative that others suggest and kind of often unintentionally impose on us. And also the narrative that we are unintentionally creating for ourselves that can be harmful for us in kind of restructures that we become kind of the protagonist of our own journey that's leading to something greater and better. Suffering is intrinsic to life. I mean, it's it's the tax on being alive, you know, aging, getting sick and dying. And this is actually tied to a lot of Buddhist concepts where it starts with the acknowledgement that this is part of life. But knowing and preparing how to kind of navigate that pain and that suffering is so key to that process and being able to make it through those, you can even call them life milestones of pain and suffering, all the better at the end of it.
you know, these, there's all these changes that happen in our lives and our circumstances, but the narrative that we tell ourselves is something that we do have control over, and so is our control over how we respond to them. We can't control other people's responses, and we can't change the world in an instant, but we can control that world that is tiny and at the same time so expansive within, within each of us. I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Salinas, a medical doctor, researcher, and neurologist, and the author of a new book, Mirror Touch, Notes from a Doctor Who Can Feel Your Pain. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. You wrote somewhere in the book that I'm amazed at how easily influenced we can be by the functioning of our brain. Yes, our brain, you know, this goes into this whole idea of like, Free will, which is such a murky topic to get into, but I think at, at a minimum, it's worth acknowledging that our brain, the way that it's wired and programmed, has a strong influence on how we think and how we feel and how we behave, and those actions and those responses then continue to shape our brain over time. And I'm always humbled with how powerful those functions are in the brain. When I have a really, really vivid mirror touch experience where it really borders on hallucination. I'm humbled in those moments, knowing that even though I consider myself a pretty rational person that can think through these experiences, even in those circumstances, my brain is still just this organ that will create these experiences that are irrational. And it's the same for the way we respond to things and how we react to things. They're often irrational. To think that we can be completely rational organisms, completely rational animals, I think it is a special kind of madness. And this is where I think getting a better sense of an emotional education, understanding kind of why it is that we respond the way that we do and we act the way that we do so that way we can kind of work through that. I think that is just as valuable, if not more so than a lot of the rational kind of didactic education that we get in school. And this is something that was advocated a lot by philosophers like, like David Hume where to think that we are completely rational is simply because our emotions, even when we're not aware, are constantly shaping the way that we think about things. I mean, we see this a lot with confirmation bias, where we are social animals who are kind of evolved to exist in tribes, and so we will create all sorts of mental reasoning kind of acrobatics to be able to reinforce the existence of our tribe and to reinforce those people who look like us, even though it doesn't make any sense because there's no factual evidence around it. And that's really all kind of built into our, our emotions. And I think it's fascinating that in the research done looking at empathy and kind of these mirroring networks, that mirroring activity is the greatest the more you relate to whoever you're looking at. So if you were to see a video of yourself being touched or in pain, that activity is greater than if you were seeing a friend or a family member being touched or in pain. And the activity is the least when you're seeing someone who looks physically unrelated to you and that you consider to be a stranger. But the opportunity there is also amazing where if you focus on putting yourself in the perspective of the other and thinking through how you are related to the other person, even if you're not physically related, finding what little bits of human experience that you have in common, that mirroring activity actually increases, as does the capacity to have positive emotions for the other. There's this one really great study where essentially they take a person and put them into a virtual reality simulation. And in that virtual reality simulation, they embody an avatar that does not look like them. And all they have to do is look at it in a mirror. And so like if you are a young white woman, they may put you in the avatar of an older black man. 
and you just spend time looking at yourself in the mirror as this older black man. And what they see is that compared to before that virtual reality experience, the amount of positive emotions and compassion towards people outside of your group you know, outside of your racial or, or ethnic group, those those thoughts and, and emotions increase substantially. I think this is all part of our evolution as humans, essentially, to begin to see ourselves more as a species as opposed to individual pockets of groups and tribes. And it's interesting that the world has been changing so dramatically and so rapidly lately, and there's really no room to expand anymore, we we really are forced into the situation where we need to be able to live together on a global scale. Oh, yes. I'm convinced that this is key to the survival of our species and of our planet, to be able to engage, engage this empathy, that we can move it towards compassion and, and kindness, and eventually that gives us hope. And... No time to lose at this point. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The world is getting yeah, crazier mean, and crazier all the time. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the world has been a crazy place for millions and millions of years, even before that we were here. It's kind of an unforgiving and cruel place for humans for the short time that we've been on this planet. It's, I think it's certainly gotten better compared to many, 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 many years ago, but there's always a potential that we will drive ourselves towards extinction for whatever reason, be it in our control, out of our control. And I think a lot of that has to do with our brains and the imperfect machine that it is. But again, there's that opportunity to engage these processes of the brain and figure out how we can see each other as a, as a species and reason through these emotions, these funny emotions and things that our brain conjures up, whatever they may be, so that way we can make choices that will help not just other people that are alive with us today, but also our future. You touched on this earlier about taking care of ourselves and the importance of that and can be one of the most difficult things for many people to do, to really think more deeply about our own needs. Not the superficial stuff, that's pretty easy, but, mm-hmm. but the deeper sense of, of care, of self-compassion and being mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. deeply kind to ourselves, which is something that we tend not to do. We tend to drive ourselves and, and demand efficiency and productivity and impressing others and living up to these imagined standards of others as opposed to use the term surrendering into ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these skills take time. I mean, to reprogram our brain takes time because many of us have spent many, many years creating very strong programming to be very attuned, very attentive to the negative, the scary, the the catastrophes, the potential catastrophes, ruminating and kind of looping through the past over and over and over again. And, you know, some people call that depression and anxiety. And part of that process is letting go of the simulations. And it's not easy. But I think that's kind of what's been at the core for centuries with this odd concept of mindfulness and meditation, which involves kind of stepping out of kind of that constant chatter and getting into a place where you, you do surrender and just let the present happen. And in letting the present happen, you have better control. Ironically, in, in letting go of control, you have more control, which I think is one of the most fascinating things about it. And for me, kind of this process of surrendering is not the equivalent of quitting. It really is this process of understanding what it is that I have control over and what it is that I don't have control over and the things that I don't have control over 
just letting it go or, or knowing when to let it go. So that way I can continue to work on the things that I can act on today. Which is how we can actually engage in regulation of our own nervous system from mm -hmm. the sympathetic nervous system to activating the parasympathetic nervous system so that we can relax and, and heal. And one of the things that's really beautiful about this process is that it's actually contagious. There's health kind of related behaviors, but also mood related behaviors, things like happiness. Those things travel through social networks. And that's partly because of these mirroring networks in our brain where we develop based off of the people around us and the people around us develop based off of who we are. And there's studies showing that the happier you are, the happier your friends will be and your friends' friends and your friends' of friends' of friends. And so I, I think even if you feel that there's all this suffering going on in the world from afar, it can lead to this kind of sense of paralysis. But if you really focus on what you can do now and if you can just be kind to the people around you, opening a door for somebody, being kind to your server, being kind to people in your home and your spouse, that has a positive influence on their friends, the people that they come in contact with, and that can spread until eventually it kind of cascades to reach the people that, that are far away. But that can happen unless we have the courage to embrace the discomfort of other people and then have the courage to act on it. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of contrasting paradox between the snowballing effect of little acts of kindness and the experience and acceptance of pain. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you think that there's any sort of evolutionary purpose to synesthesia? Hmm. That's a question that's been asked by a lot of researchers. Some people think that it's, uh, it's what they call a spandrel. And so a spandrel in architecture is just a piece of design that doesn't really have a function. So it's possible that synesthesia is something like that, where it just happened to evolve and it just retained itself. Part of it may be that synesthesia was a part of something critical in our evolution. And then even maybe more forward-looking, maybe synesthesia is a part of our evolution. Synesthesia is thought to be caused by a combination of defective pruning in our brain. So when, when we're all born, we are all thought to have synesthesia, and it goes away at around age two. And as we age, our brain is constantly trimming excess connections, kind of like getting rid of streets to put in a major highway. And that happens a lot kind of in early puberty. And it's thought that people who have synesthesia, that pruning, that trimming process didn't happen. So there's all these leftover connections. So you get these odd kind of associations and connections between different parts of the brain. And another thought is that it might be due to just a very excitable, very active brain cells that are just kind of chatting with all the cells around them, creating all these odd kind of connections. But I think in the, in the end, it's a combination of kind of what hardware you were born with and that you have and what software you have, which is kind of like how you're able to reason and kind of how you're able to attend to those experiences. And that hardware aspect of it, we know that there's something biological there. There's something heritable about it. If you have synesthesia, you're more likely to have a family member who has synesthesia. And genetic studies have shown that there are maybe some linkages to the genes tied to autistic spectrum disorders. And there's a lot of overlap there between the sensory experience of people with autism and people who have synesthesia. You actually find synesthesia more in people who have autism than in the general population. So there may be a part of our human evolution as we're seeing more and more people with autism and I think maybe more and more people with synesthesia. Maybe this is a part of our evolution. But I think that's a part of our evolution that 
has the potential for, for strengths as it does for vulnerabilities. Just like for some people, they have an easier time learning languages and learning music and have a hard time calculating tip and tax on a restaurant bill. I think this is a, a trait that the more we're able to learn about it and also to embrace it and figure out how to make the most of it, the better off we'll be. Yeah, I think having more diversity would be far better for us as a species. And I can't help but think that much of the pruning, neurological pruning that occurs, occurs based on our cultural norms and that we could be making a kind of mistake in that process. Yeah, I mean, humans are very good at inventing ways to sabotage themselves, but we're also really good at adapting to new and different environments. It's one of the things that sets us apart. I really think that there's an opportunity there and it's very tangible that we can act on now. And that's why I've been thinking while reading the book and after that synesthesia is actually seeming to be a wonderful gift for us because I think it helps expand our awareness of ourselves and of the possibilities that are available to us. I think so, too. And I think as we talk more about things like synesthesia, we get to talk more about our, how our brain works, and we also get to learn more about how we each see the world so differently. Each of us has a very different reality, and in that process, we can appreciate even more how important it is to learn what that reality is for each person so that way we can understand a little bit more about why they think, feel, and do what they do. Right, and why people are different and have different responses to things and to be able to build those empathetic muscles that allow us to, to allow other people to be who they are, even if they are very different from ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Well, this has been really a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed this so much. And the book is Mirror Touch, Notes from a Doctor Who Can Feel Your Pain, a fascinating book in the tradition of Oliver Sacks and Jill Bolte-Taylor's My Stroke of Insight. Joelle Salinas, thank you so much for your time. This has been a delight. Thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Dr. Joelle Salinas, a Harvard-trained medical doctor, researcher, and neurologist, and the author of Mirror Touch, Notes from a doctor who can feel your pain.